Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now covering Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. This will be the story of the Holy Family's escape to Egypt, escaping Herod, escaping the slaughter of the innocents, and their return to Israel. This is a remake of an earlier audio I did on Matthew 2 because I recorded the audio with the microphone turned around backwards, and it sounds pretty lousy. So we're going to do it over. Our context is this. We've already seen the story of the Magi showing up two years after Jesus was born. They're living in, Jesus is living in Bethlehem with his mother and father. The Magi show up. They go to Herod, and they say, where can we find the, the king, the new king? Herod doesn't like this, so he says, hey, when did the star appear that told you about this new king? They said two years ago, so Herod says, hmm, two years ago? Well, I think I'll kill all the babies from two years old and up. Well, actually, before he did that, he says, How about Magi, why don't you go down to Bethlehem, find out where these people are, and come back and tell me. And the Magi didn't do that. They were told later that don't go back to Jerusalem and tell Herod that, but that was the original plan. And then when they didn't show up, Herod killed all the babies in Bethlehem in vicinity up to two years old, trying to kill the Messiah, the so-called slaughter of the innocent. So that's that's where we are. We start in Matthew 2.13. Now when they had gone, that's the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. That's the Magi in Bethlehem, not in the manger, but in Jesus' house, wherever that was in Bethlehem. All right, let me start over in Matthew 2.13. Now when they had gone, when the Magi had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And now we don't know who this angel is. Probably Gabriel, he always seems to be the angel giving messages to the Holy Family. Appeared to the Lord, to appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now notice the angel didn't say, Take the child and your son and flee to Egypt. Why? Because really Jesus wasn't Joseph's son, was he? Joseph was the mere stepfather because the Holy Spirit was the father of the child. So the angel says, Child and his mother, they're supposed to go down to Egypt. Why Egypt? Why is that a good place to escape from Herod's wrath? Well, it was fairly close by. If you look at a map, all you have to do is go down through Gaza, southern Israel, turn the corner of the southeastern corner of the Sea of, of the Mediterranean Sea, and there you are. You're in Egypt, in the Delta land. And it was close by, fairly easy to get to. Remember, they're carrying a baby. It's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Herod can't go down there and get them. And also, there were many Jews down there. There was a temple that Onias the Fourth, one of the previous characters in Jewish history there. I think it was doing the Maccabean era. I can't remember exactly when he was, but he built a temple at Heliopolis, a famous Jewish temple down there. And there were lots of Greek-speaking Jews that were down there that had the Septuagint for about 300 years or so. So there's a good reason to go to Egypt. And so the angel tells Joseph to get out of Dodge. Now, the angel tells Joseph, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Well, that's logical. Once Herod realized the Magi had stiffed him by not returning to Jerusalem and saying where the baby was in Bethlehem, when Herod realized that he'd been snookered by the Magi, well, where's the logical place to go? Bethlehem, because the Jewish leaders he had talked to about where the Messiah is to be born and when, they had told Herod that the Jewish Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem because of the famous place in Micah 5.2, which told about where the Messiah was born. So Herod knew that Bethlehem was the place, and so he would go down there, and he'd be looking for Joseph and Mary, and so God has to get, God through his angel has to get the Holy Family out of Bethlehem, or Jesus would have been killed prematurely. 
We go down to Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Now remember, he had a dream. The angel appeared to him in a dream and said, get out. It's still nighttime, so we speculate reasonably that this was the same night. He didn't waste around. He said, get up, let's go. He left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Now, how can Joseph just get up and go and flee to a foreign country? Well, remember, he had gotten a lot of presents from the Magi, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. He was well financed. And nighttime is the coolest time for travel in those hot regions. Plus, there's nobody going to see you leave. Now, Joseph is a good man. He obeys commands from God and God's angels all the time, and he does it again here. He stayed there until the death of Herod, which was 4 B.C., according to secular history. Now, how long Jesus and his family were down there in Egypt is not known, as the NIV Study Bible says. He was probably about two years old when he left for Egypt, as we established in the last video, because the star had appeared two years earlier before the Magi got there. So if we assume that Jesus was born when the star was born, and again, that's an assumption. That would make Jesus born about 6 B.C. rather than 4 B.C., but maybe the star appeared two years earlier, and to give the Magi time to get their affairs in order to trap, make the long journey, and maybe Jesus hadn't actually been born two years earlier. Maybe the star just appeared to the Magi two years earlier. Herod just assumed that, the Magi, that Jesus had been born two years earlier, but Herod could have been wrong. So whether Jesus was born 6 B.C. or 4 B.C., that's a real complicated issue. It's over my head. I haven't really studied it that much because I don't care that much. But at any rate, we know that Jesus could not have been down there in Egypt very long because Herod died right about the same time. He died in 4 B.C. right about the time of the birth of Jesus, or at least within two years of the birth of Jesus. John Gill speculates that Jesus was in Egypt about three or four months because he supposes that Herod suffered a divine vengeance quickly and he died from his disease. Now, Jesus leaving Egypt and going back to Israel is said to fulfill a prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy, namely Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, now, let's talk about Hosea. When Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son, the son was the whole nation of Israel, not Jesus, the whole nation, called out of Egypt. But Matthew takes this prophecy and applies it to Jesus. Now, there are certain parallels between Israel and Jesus. Both Israel and Jesus were oppressed by evil political power. In the case of the Israel, it was the Egyptian kingdom. In the case of Jesus, it was the Roman government under Herod. Both Israel and Jesus were captive in Egypt, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Both were led out of Egyptian captivity by God, so it's a pretty good parallel. And it could be that the expression, out of Egypt I call my son, could have become proverbial at this time to signify any great deliverance. But this verse is a classic example of the problem of dealing of illustrating the problem of how the New Testament writers fulfill Old Testament prophecy, how they consider Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. People have written books on this. It used to always bug me when I'd see this. I've gotten used to the way they do things. They take things very loosely and apply it to New Testament events. We go down to verse 16, Matthew 2. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and went and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. 
the time which he determined from the Magi was the time the Magi told him the star had appeared. So Herod figured, well, that's probably when the Messiah was born, something when the star appeared. That was two years earlier. Therefore, if I kill all the male children two years and under, I'm going to get the Messiah. Because I know the place, Bethlehem, from Micah 5, 2. And I know the time from the Magi, two years. So the Messiah cannot be over two years old. So I'll leave three-year-old kids alone. But I'm going to get two years old, one years old, and zero years old. I'm going to get all those just to cover my bases. And I'm going to kill the Messiah. Now, when Herod decided to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, is when he had seen he had been tricked by the Magi. Now, the Magi didn't trick Herod when they told him that they were going to come back and see him and tell Herod where the Messiah was. They sincerely meant to do that. But what happened is, is on their way back, an angel of God told them and said, Hey, you've been mad. Herod's a dirtbag. I want you to not go back to Herod. Go back to Babylon by an alternate route. That's when the Magi tricked Herod on their way back home, not going through Jerusalem. But from Herod's point of view, he thought he had been tricked from the get-go when the Magi said they were going to come back to him and they didn't go. So Herod kills, he slew, as the New American Study Bible puts it, he slew all the male children in Bethlehem. And from that, we get the common title for this event, the, the so-called Slaughter of the Innocents. Now, slaughter of the innocent sounds like a holocaust. sounds like a massacre. Well, the scripture doesn't put it that way. It just says, Matthew just says that Herod slew all the male children. The number has often been exaggerated as being in the thousands of male children who were killed, but that can't be because it was a small village like Bethlehem. That's not likely. There's not going to be thousand little kids in Bethlehem. Now, of course, Matthew also says Bethlehem and its vicinity, but still, even with the vicinity, you're not going to get mass murder. Well, even one killing is still a brutal murder, and it was very unfortunate. But you know how people like to get poetic and literary. It's a slaughter of the innocents, and so we get the wrong idea in our head. I mean, not that Herod is a good guy. I mean, he killed tons of people. I mean, most of them his relatives, his wife. I mean, you know, he was a monster. But in this case, he just killed the small children in Bethlehem, the male children. Now, Josephus doesn't mention this so-called slaughter of the innocents, and liberals love to say, see there, the massacre didn't occur because Josephus didn't mention it. Well, given Herod's manifold atrocities, it would be very easy for Josephus to overlook this minor little event of killing little babies in Bethlehem. It's not minor to the person who experienced the murder, but when you're looking at it from a historical point of view, compared to all the other murders did that Herod did, the murder was a minor event, and that's why Josephus didn't mention it, so liberals can go smoke a pipe. All right, so we go now to Matthew 2, verses 17 through 18. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Now, this is a quote that Matthew is taking from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15 which I'll read now. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now here we have another example of a New Testament writer quoting an Old Testament prophecy in a very loose sense. So let's see what Jeremiah meant when he said it. First of all, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and Benjamin was one of those tribes. The original patriarch of the tribe of Benjamin was the man Benjamin, and Rachel was his mother. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar and his generals came to attack 
Israel and carry them off in 586 B.C. and burnt the city down and all. And there were previous deportations too. I forgot which particular deportation this one was that Jeremiah is referring to. But when the Babylonians would get ready to send the children of Israel off, they would use Ramah, which was a city in Benjamin, as a staging point to bring all the captive Hebrew slaves to Ramah and get them processed and shipped on out to Babylon. And so Jeremiah says, oh, everybody's crying in Ramah. Rachel, and that, of course, is poetically speaking of the mother of Benjamin. Rachel's weeping for her children, her descendants, Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin. And she's not really there, of course. She's been dead for quite a long time. And she is said poetically to be weeping for her children, the people of Benjamin, who are getting ready to be shipped out to Babylon. She refused to be comforted for her children because they are no more, because they've been shipped off to Babylon. Now, Matthew takes the this prophecy and says, oh, there's a voice in Ramah. Now, Ramah is a city in Benjamin. It's lost. It was close to Bethlehem. And so since it was close to Bethlehem, there's going to be, and that's the vicinity, and so people have been killed there. But it's basically poetic, symbolic of the whole area there. Bethlehem and the whole area, people are weeping and mourning because their kids have been killed by Herod. Rachel is weeping for her children. This is in the tribe of Benjamin. Rachel is the mother of the original patriarch Benjamin. And so Rachel is said poetically to be weeping for all the people that Herod killed in Bethlehem and vicinity. And she refuses to be consoled because they're no more. They're no more because they've been killed. So you see how Matthew takes an Old Testament prophecy and adapts it to his circumstances. We go down to Matthew 2, verses 19, 20, and 21. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Go, uh, get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now when did this happen? When Herod died? As Gil has said earlier, this is a few months after the Holy Family was in Egypt, probably, we don't know for sure. The day was celebrated as a day of rejoicing by the Jews thereafter. I'm not talking about the day that Jesus left Egypt, but the day that Herod died. Whoa, 4th of July, because Herod was a monster. He was 70 years old when he died. He was in the 37th year of his reign. Now, Eusebius of Caesarea, the early church historian, 4th century church historian, I think he's 4th century A.D. Maybe he's the 3rd century A.D. I can't remember, but anyway, he's, uh, he's famous. He quotes Josephus, and Gill quotes Eusebius, quoting Josephus, to give us a blow-by-blow account of Herod's death. And I've I got to read this. This is poetic justice for this monster. Quote, a, this is how he died, all right? Quote, a burning fever seized him with an intolerable itching all over his body and continual pains of a colic. His feet swelled with a dropsy. He had an inflammation in the lower part of his belly a putrefaction in his privy parts. Putrefaction means it gets hard, I guess. Hard and rotten and infected. In his privy parts, that's referring to, I'm going to use the Chinese word so I won't offend anybody by using the English. In his ingdong, he had a putrefaction in his ingdong, which bred worms. He had worms in his ingdong. A frequency and difficulty of breathing and convulsions in all his members. He had a voracious appetite, a stinking breath. Voracious appetite probably came from all the worms in his intestines eating up all his food. A stinking breath, and his intestines abounded with ulcers. When he found that all means were made use of were ineffectual, and that he must die, he attempted to lay violent hands upon himself, but was prevented, 
and soon after expired in a very miserable manner. Well, Matthew spares us all the details, but I just, you know, this is quite a story. How Herod died, he was paid for all of his manifest atrocities. Now, the angel, probably Gabriel, told Joseph to head out to Israel. didn't say go back to Bethlehem or go back to Judea because we'll see later there was a bad guy ruling Judea at the time and, he, and that would be, not be a good place to go. So he just says in general the land of Israel. Later he told him to avoid uh, Judea, Bethlehem or Jerusalem. And the angel says to Joseph, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now the those is kind of problematical because we know that Herod is a individual that sought Jesus' death, but, but Herod is singular, not plural. And the angel said those. So why did he use a plural word? Well, here's three options. Option one, Herod is meant, the plural was used for the singular. John Gill, Adam Clark, and Joseph Jameson Fawcett and Brown, all three suggest this option. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, quote, the plural, he says plural, quote, a common expression in most languages where only one is meant. So this is a common thing to do. I know in English now people are starting to say they instead of the generic he because God forbid we would offend the feminist. So we say, we're talking about a, an, in, a, an unnamed individual. We don't know the gender. We say they did it when it's plural, but actually you're talking about one. So even in English we see that, and in modern English, which I don't use because I despise feminism. But languages change, and, and so that could very well be. I don't know, of course, the ancient Greek well enough to know that, but that's reasonable to me. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, says that the plural might have been used because of the analogy with the situation in the Exodus. In Exodus 4.19, we read this, Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Well, that's a stretch. For one thing, it's going back to Egypt, not from Egypt. And it was plural there. And so you say, well, Matthew says plural there, so it's plural here. And Matthew, I don't think so. That's, that's too, too way out there for me. But anyway, it could be that's just a, a, an artifact of the language. Those who sought the child's life are dead. He, what he means is, is Herod who sought the child's life are dead. Well, that's option number one. Let's look at option number two. It could be referring to two people, Herod and Antipater, his son. I always like to call him Antipater, but apparently most of the people I listen to said Antipaters. Herod and Antipater, his son. Now, Antipater might be worried about the Messiah, too, because he's could inherit from Herod to rule. He was next in line to rule after Herod, and he doesn't want a king competing with him, so he'd want Jesus killed just as much as his father Herod was. But the angel says that the those are dead, which would mean Herod and Antipater was dead. Well, that's not a problem because Antipater was killed five days before Herod died, killed by Herod, his father. Herod was a monster. As Gill and Clark point out, Antipater's gone, so Antipater and Herod are both gone, so I think that's the most reasonable option in my humble opinion. Another option might be the executioners who were sent by Herod to Bethlehem, and so the angel says those who seek his life are dead, but then, then why would all the ex executioners be dead? No, I don't think so. So I think it's Herod and Antipater, his son, are dead. And so it's safe. You can go back now. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, in verse 21, and came into the land of Israel. Now, Joseph intended to return to Bethlehem, as is plain from the next verse, which we'll get to in a minute. And it was logical to go back to, Jerus to Jerusalem, which is four miles north of Bethlehem, because Jerusalem is the city of the great king, and Joseph was the stepfather of the great king, the Messiah. So it's logical he'd be going back to Judea. But we read now in Matthew 2.22, 
But when he, that's Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. So he had a natural fear, and God confirmed that natural fear and says, Don't go back there to the south of Israel, to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem. Go back to the north, to Galilee. Now, what did Joseph hear about Archelaus? Well, Archelaus was a son of Herod. Herod had ten wives. One of his wives was Malthace, and Archelaus was the son of Malthace. He was the governor of Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. That's just to the north of Jerusalem in Judea itself, and Idumea is south of Jerusalem. From 4 B.C. to 6 A.D., he was an evil and cruel man like his father. He once killed thousands of Jews at the temple during a Passover. Can you imagine going to Passover and getting killed? That happened at the very beginning of his reign, right about this time that Joseph is thinking about going there. That might have been why Joseph was afraid to go there. He heard that somewhere between 3,000 and 9,000, the sources differ, 3,000 to 9,000 Jews have been slaughtered. So he's thinking, you know, this might not be a good place for my family to go to. Caesar Augustus finally banished Archelaus because he was so cruel. Now, Joseph doesn't want to go there under Archelaus, but now he's still got to go to Galilee. And who's ruling Galilee now? Well, Herod Another son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, that's the famous Herod Antipas, who was at the crucifixion of Jesus and who beheaded John the Baptist. He was up there. He was the tetrarch of, not a king, but a tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Galilee's in the north. You go across the Jordan River up there. You get to the Transjordan area, which is called Perea, all on the eastern edge of the Jordan River, all the way down to Jerusalem, actually. Herod the Great is ruling that area. He was a milder person than Archelaus. Here's something about Herod the Great, uh, excuse me, Herod Antipas, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Quote, being intent on building two cities, Julius and Tiberius, he endeavored by, Julius ended up being, uh, Julius was Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day, and Tiberius, I've been to Tiberius, I've been to both of those places actually, uh, Caesarea Philippi and Tiberius is on the southwestern coast of the Sea of Galilee, he became a famous Roman town. So Herod was intent on building two cities. He endeavored by a mild carriage and promises of considerable immunities to entice people from other provinces to come and settle in them. He was besides in a state of enmity with his brother Archelaus. This was a most favorable circumstance to the Holy Family. In other words, Herod Antipas was like the government of Canada. Come on, we don't have any people living up here in the ice, so let's have an easy immigration policy and let a bunch of immigrants come in. So he gave probably tax immunities or whatever to get people to come up there. And plus he hated Archelaus. And so perfect place, perfect time. Now I said he, he was ruling more gently than Archelaus, but still he was a crafty and licentious person, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. Josephus tells us this. Our gospel history tells us this. After all, he beheaded John the Baptist. We know about that. Now Joseph might have wanted to go to Galilee not only because Herod Antipas was milder than Archelaus, but also because Galilee was an obscure place. The Holy Family could live there unobserved and free from danger. We go now to Matthew 2.23, last verse. It's in the middle of a sentence, so I guess I should go back to 22 and pick it up. After being warned by God in a dream, he, Joseph, left for the regions of Galilee, verse 23, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. Why did Matthew not say he came and lived in their hometown, Nazareth? Because we know that Nazareth was the Jesus' hometown. We read that in Luke 1, 26 and 27. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Well, 
Luke 2.39 says the same thing. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Hmm. Luke says their own town, which is like their hometown of Nazareth. Matthew doesn't say that. Well, some people speculate, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown does, that Matthew might not have had access to Luke's gospel. He might not have known that Joseph and Mary had lived in Nazareth. So that's why he just calls it a city instead of their hometown. Came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was in the tribe of Zebulun up in the north. You can look at a map and see that. Zebulun being one of the 12 tribes. Now, it says that this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Now, the interesting thing is, here is there's not one place where you can see in the Old Testament prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's just not there. So this has led to a lot of speculation. And part of the speculation is, why did Matthew say prophets plural instead of singular? Well, depending on what one's view of Nazarene is, that will determine what number prophet should be, singular or plural. I'll show that to you as we go through. Let's look at the options now, what this could, what Matthew could be referring to when he says the prophets say that he, Jesus, shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this is a difficult issue, as Adam Clark says. It's difficult. I'm going to give you some options. I've got my favorite. I'll report. You decide. The first option is the branch option. This would be Isaiah 11.1. 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, as David's father. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's, of course, referring to Jesus. You see a stump. Family's cut down. Family's gone. Then all of a sudden, this little shoot grows out of the stump the next year. Life is, continues, and so Jesus is the branch, the descendant of, of Jesse and David. Descendant of Jesse in the family of David. Well, what's that got to do with Nazarene? Well, here's the argument. This is from Ellicott Commentary. Netzer in Hebrew means branch, and Nazarene comes from Netzer. Why was Nazareth called Nazareth? Because of the multitude of plants and trees that grew there. A lot of branches in Nazareth, so therefore we'll call Nazareth Nazareth, because branches there and branches are Netzer. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says this, the word branch, Netzer, is an allusion to Isaiah's prediction of his lowly twig-like upspringing from the branchless, dried-up stump of Jesse. Continuing on with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, Matthew found in the word of scorn, glory, the word of scorn meaning, meaning branch, a humble branch. The town of Nazareth probably took its name from this meaning of the word as pointing to the trees and shrubs for which it was conspicuous. The general reference to the prophets is explained by the fact that the same thought is expressed in Jeremiah 23.5, Jeremiah 33.15, Zechariah 3.8, Zechariah 6.12. Though there the Hebrew word is zamach and not netzer. Well, that's in English is, is branch. But the Hebrew is different, which weakens the argument saying that this reference to Nazareth comes from Netzer, reference to Jesus the Nazarene coming from Netzer. Well, that's a nice argument. I don't really buy it. It's a little bit strained for me. Now, since Nazarene is referred to, uh, branch, excuse me, is referred to in four Old Testament prophets, that, that would answer the plural here in Matthew 2.23. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural, and then those four quotations. Well, it's four quotations. It's actually what two prophets, Jeremiah and Zechariah, and Isaiah too. Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Isaiah, that explains the prophets. All right, well, that's option number one if you want to buy that one. Here's an option, and I think that's reasonable, but here's option number two, which I don't think is likely. 
I call this the Nazarite option as to why Matthew said that Jesus was a shall be called a Nazarene. Judges 13.5, For behold you, this is Samson's unnamed mother that's being addressed here, you, Samson's mom, shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Nazarite vow, of course, you grow your hair long, you don't drink wine, you dedicate and consecrate yourself to the Lord for a certain period of time before you cut your hair. And so he shall be called a Nazarene because he shall be called a Nazarite because he is holy like a Nazarite person under a Nazarite vow is. That's the way the argument goes. Ellicott denies this argument. I think he's correct to do so. There's two reasons why he denies it. Nazarite and Nazareth are spelled differently in both Greek and Hebrew. They just happen to sound alike. And besides, Jesus' life was much more holy than the holiness expressed by a Nazarite vow. Oh, he shall be called a Nazarite? He's going to wear his hair long and not drink wine. Well, gee, that's not saying too much about Jesus. So we're going to, I'm going to chunk that option. I don't like it. Option number three I call the despised option. And by the way, if you take the Nazarite option, you will have to say that the prophets are, are I don't know how you handle prophets in the Nazarite vow. I had noticed that. I don't know what prophet is going to be talking about a Nazarite. But I don't care because I don't like that option. Let's look at the despised option. NIV Study Bible says that this, this reference to Jesus shall be called Nazarene refers to several Old Testament prefigurations or predictions that the Messiah would be despised. And this would explain how prophets is plural because a lot of prophets talked about Jesus as being despised. So he shall be called a Nazarene is synonymous, as Matthew says, is synonymous with he shall be called despised. Now this to me is a strong case here, so let me, let me go through it here. First of all, since it's talking about several Old Testament predictions, that explains the plural prophets. Now, I'm going to give you a quote from Chrysostom, the famous golden tongue art of Constantinople in the 4th century, quoted by the commentator Benson. Quote, There was among the Jews a celebrated thief called Ben-Nizar, or Ben-Nizar, and in allusion to him they gave the name to Christ. His very going to dwell at Nazareth was an occasion of his being despised and rejected by the Jews. In other words... Jesus the Nazarene, it sounds very similar to Ben-Nezer the thief, and Nazarene and Nezer are close, and so Nezer is, a thief is, has a lot of opprobrium, opprobrium ta- attached to his name, and so Jesus did too. Thus when Philip said to Nathanael, Chrysostom continues, we have found Jesus of Nazareth, of whom Moses spoke. Nathanael answered, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And when Nicodemus seemed to favor him, the rest of the council said to him, Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. Here then we have a plain sense of these words. Again, Chrysostom is still talking. He was sent to this contemptible place that he might there have a name of infamy and contempt put upon him, according to the frequent intimations of the prophets. Now here's some examples of Old Testament prophecies showing that the Messiah was to be despised. Isaiah 53, 2-3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. No form, no majesty, no beauty. Drop down to verse 7, 8, and 9 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, 
nor was any deceit in his mouth. Well, that shows he was basically crucified on the cross. He was despised. Isaiah 53, 12, dropping down three more verses. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Numbered with transgressors. He's despised, yet he bore the sin of many. And we can also go to Psalm 22, the famous Messianic Psalm. So just for an example, I'll read verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Despised. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their hands. Despised. All right, if you take all these verses showing that Jesus was despised and say, and then you go up here and look at what Matthew says in Matthew 2.23. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene, substitute despised for Nazarene. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called despised. That fits pretty good, in my humble opinion. All right, with that said, we are now finished with Matthew 2, and we will continue on in our next audio with Matthew 3. We'll do the next nine verses, the first nine verses of Matthew 3, as John the Baptist makes his first appearance. I hope you listen into that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 